Welcome to episode 10 of the Vinyl Detroit podcast. Thanks again for joining me today. Uh, the, the podcast is doing really, really well, and we have listeners, frankly, in every continent at this point, except for Antarctica. So I'm really pulling for the Antarctica folks to uh, start listening. Hopefully the internet's good down there. Uh, again, thanks for joining me. Today's episode is a very special one, as I had the pleasure of speaking to a musician whose work I've admired really for over 25 years now. His band's uh, debut was titled A Certain Smile, A Certain Sadness, and I considered it really a shining moment for American independent pop due to its unique organ-forward sound. And you're going to hear that in the samples that I'm going to be playing during the interview and as well as after the interview. I think it really is a unique sound that, you know, if you haven't heard this band before, you probably haven't heard a sound like this. Another thing that this album features that I, I loved, and I, I asked the artist about it during the interview, was this technique of weaving the songs together. So it really kind of comes out as one cohesive unit. Uh, for those fans of Pale Saints, My Bloody Valentine, you'll know what I'm talking about, where, you know, one song really kind of feeds into another, creating like that, that, that unique uh, singular sound throughout an album, which I, I think is really, really cool. So again, I don't want to spend too much talking about the album. I don't want to spend too much time talking about the artist. I'd rather get into it. So without any more delay, this episode 10 features my interview with Dusty Reski of Rocket Ship, where we discussed his band's 1996 album, A Certain Smile, A Certain Sadness. Ch-ch-changes you put me through So 
All right. Thanks for joining me today on the Vinyl Detroit podcast. Very, very special episode. Uh, very special to me to be able to speak to somebody that I've enjoyed his music for uh, probably close to 25 years now. Uh, that's Dusty Resky of Rocket Ship. And we're going to speak about his band's album, A Certain Smile, A Certain Sadness, uh, that came out in, I believe it was 1996 on Slumberland. Uh, I've been listening to it nonstop since I've had this uh, this interview uh, on the books, and I am so excited to welcome Dusty to the show. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. That's great having you. I'm so happy you did this, and uh, you know I spent a lot of years listening to your music. And in fact, you and I were sharing off offline here that I was uh, doing some shoveling here in Detroit as we got quite a bit of snow and actually I listened to the album again while I was doing that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to kind of, kind of kick this off. You know, I, some people maybe don't know your history or the band's history as much as, as much as I've, I've come to learn about it. So would you just mind sharing a little bit about the origins of rocket ship? Uh, no, I don't mind. Um, it's well, I li lived in Sacramento, California at the time. It was in the early 90s and it formed really out of, um, well, I was in a band with my best friends out of high school and, and um, his brother and, um, and in a band called the Rosebuds. And we were kind of, a sh we ended up being a kind of a shoegazer band sure. but we, and we did kind of mainstream alternative rock of the era uh, and, and pop like Dismiss and R.E.M. and smushed, Sonic Youth smushed all that kind of stuff together. And, um, but then got into English shoegaze music. And anyway, after that, that broke up, I was looking to do something else. I thought I would, um, I w wanted to do kind of a Galaxy 500 kind mm. of thing. And, um, but, you know, for so much of the eighties keyboards were really, um, dorky or you know i think when digital synthesis came along it was not a cool thing to have in a band True. until stereolab came along and started using old uh farfizas and, and mm -hmm. old organs and old moogs and stuff like that anyway so i just kind of had this idea of doing a galaxy 500 kind of slow core band with an organ and got an old hammond m2 and dragged it up to uh the place i shared with um my girlfriend on the second story, I believe that was kind of insane, but, um, <laughs> and recorded some demos with that, uh, on a four track and they're up on our, uh, the rocket ship, uh, band camp page. Really? Was it was called silver rocket after the, the Sonic youth song. Nice. Um, but I was taking a recording class at, at, um, at a SAC city college. And, um, my friend Ed Artigas suggested why not use the, the band rock use the name rocket ship is a little more original than the sonic youth title but um and then i started to put together this band with a drummer he had been a fan of the rosebuds robert cartwright mm -hmm. and his um and he mentioned his girlfriend heidi played keyboards played piano and so we started getting together to do this slow chord thing but one day we were driving around and um he played this album by felt called let the snakes crinkle their heads to death i think and it's all instrumental and um but i think the very first track on there is it has this really kind of poppy organ lead on there and um i was instantly felt like that was uh uh something i wanted to be a part of or i wanted to um kind of 
explore that sound more with this outfit. So um, that was kind of the inspiration for Hey Hey Girl. And then I just started to get more and more into um, indie pop, I suppose, the underground pop scene um, that I didn't know a lot about. But uh, as I've mentioned other times, I always want to give John Conley um, props. Um, he lives in Sacramento and he just always knew what all the good bands were and was uh, uh, on top of it. And so he really turned me on to a lot of the cool seven inches that were coming out. A lot more American underground music than I had been listening to, which again was kind of more than the major label or like major indie sure. level um, labels um, up until that point, 480 or creation. Mm -hmm. You know, factory and that kind of stuff. Sure. I guess those are all are all British. So I got to a lot <laughs> to learn a lot more about what was going on in, in the American scene. Um, and then we had Verna. I, I worked at the Beat Record Store, R.I.P. And she worked there as well. And you know, she had been on the scene for a while. And she joined as the bass player. And that was really the first like. Well, we gigged, I guess, without without having a bass player for a while, but. Um, and never really played any gigs actually with Robert, but the old uh, Rosebuds drummer, Jim Rivas joined, and that was kind of the, the first um, quartet. Wow, what a good history. I, you know, you, you kind of ran through the whole thing there really, really well. I, you know, it, last night I was listening to Felt, and, you know, I, 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 can, hear, I can hear bits, obviously, you know, they, they did have a lot of that leading organ in some of the, in some of the albums and everything, and it's nice to hear that that was an inspiration because, you know, I think, I think felt's kind of, I don't know how you'd, how you'd explain it, but you know, there's like the perfect pop element, but then there's this kind of a skew <laughs> sound. I mean, obviously Lawrence's voice is a bit unique and they just, they've inspired so many people that it turns that, that I like that, you know, that, that, that have performed. And um, it's nice to hear that they had an influence on you as well, for sure. Strangely, it was just that that one album. I don't know any of their other stuff. I was kind of meant to get something else, but I've gotten on a felt kick here because they reissued. Uh, I think it was the, I want to say it was like they did like ten albums in ten years or something like that. And I got on this kick of of just buying them all up, and um, they're they're so solid. I mean, it's funny because they're all really really short, but they're mm -hmm. just really solid from beginning to end. And I mean, it's perfect for like the vinyl format. I mean, you just throw it on and and you can go just end to end and it's it's just all quality which you know i feel your album that we're going to talk about today is exactly the same way so you know when we we talked about the origins of rocket ship could we maybe even rewind it a little bit more and talk about you and and, and really maybe where you started pick, picking up your first instrument and, and how you got started with music yeah i think i was kind of a, a shiftless uh teenager in in some ways and so my parents wanted me to get interested in something um i had moved around a lot and so uh, we had and i was living in texas and so i think within a couple of years maybe when I, around when i was 13 they bought a drum kit for me and also an electric guitar and i started to play that but i never really really picked uh, you know took them up a lot. I mean, I, I guess I kind of got to okay on guitar. Finally, um, in college, around when I was 18 or something, I was watching somebody play guitar in a dorm room and thought, oh, I can play all those chords, you know, that, <laughs> wow, I actually can play guitar somewhat. Um, 
and but but really but really loved uh was always just in, in love with music but um so my senior year when I was in Sacramento, I moved and met Josh Berkeley, who was a very good friend. We ended up being in the Rosebuds together. And um, what we would do was I would go out to his house on the weekends and I would just spend all Friday and night and Saturday there. And he had, a, I think, a four track recorder and a bunch of instruments. And we just would record and record and record. And at first, the stuff was kind of... Um, joke band kind of stuff i mean we kind of like you know st stumbled into it. we could, could keep our tongue tongues in our cheeks and and uh, but then after a while we started doing new order covers and i started to try to write a little more serious music and that's kind of how i got into it and um as I mentioned, when I, I went to, to college, went back to, to Texas, uh, where I've been uh, living for the 10 years before I moved to California, this yeah. is in the late 80s. I, um, he, over the Christmas break, he and his, uh, and, and another friend had made a tape together with, of electronic music, very Depeche Mode oh. um, influenced and New Order influenced. And I then went back to Texas and was listening to that nonstop and on the bus to classes and pretty much knew that that's what I wanted to do, that I didn't want to keep living in, in um, this apartment in Austin mm -hmm. and uh, just had to, to play music. And it's been kind of that way since. It's always been the primary focus and organizing principle of my, my life, I think. Well, you know, it's nice that you've been able to do that. I mean, for, for better or for worse, you know, you've gotten to, to do what you love. I mean, I think it shows... I, Obviously, the early recordings, I you know, I have some of those. I've I've got you know, I think it's your most recent album, and and that shows. And you know, the fact that you get to do that is is something I'm sure many people wish they could do. Uh, you know, to have that opportunity. So, you know, you you ended up on you mentioned um, ending up on the compilation uh, why pop stars can't dance, and I, I guess I, I wanted to kind of know. Obviously, it's a Slumberland release. I wanted to know if that was uh, I don't know how to put this. How did that come about? How did that connection to Slumberland happen? And then obviously the album followed, but can you maybe explain a little bit of that for, for me? Yeah. Well, when I, um, went over to John's and he played me a bunch of records, I, part of the idea was to write down a bunch of the labels, <laughs> um, because we always, you know, thought you, you know, well, we didn't know how how, to, how you got signed, but there was always this <laughs> idea like you you could get signed to a label, and that's you know, and you could be like ride or something. <laughs> sure, but um, but then the idea that there was these smaller labels and they were mo more approachable, and that they could put your stuff out too, um, was is a whole new idea. Um, and they were also putting out this really a lot of really interesting, uh, unique music. And I sure. like the the DIY um, ethic. Uh, this is uh, kind of about the same period as my politics start to to mm. develop. Um, and so Slumberland was just one of the labels I wrote down. John played me a bunch of stuff, and if I liked the music, then I would I wrote down what the, the labels were. Now this was before. The, there was any kind of internet at sure. all. And so it, it was just all through the mail. And um, Heidi and I, she probably, I mean, 
realistically made the cookies that were at her place, but we made a bunch of cookies and we sent demos out to a bunch of, <laughs> of, of labels and uh, we didn't hear back um, from Slumberland. Uh, really? that one, but we did hear back from bus, the bus stop label. Sure. And so, um, and put out then the Hey, Hey Girl single, but I think then Mike from Slumberland heard that and liked it and approached me about working with Slumberland after that. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that 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 was the chronology of things. I guess I should have done a little bit more research on that. <laughs> no, I mean it's all like within six months or a year. Or oh, something. okay. Yeah, that that's a great compilation. There's just, I mean, you know, I mean, there's there's just kind of the who's who of that, you know, mid to early '90s American scene. Yeah, that along with a uh, pop American style were really, oh, yeah. I think, influential to for a lot of people. Yeah, so I guess a really quick story on Pop American Style. You know, my, my friends Myron and Rose from Shoestrings, you know, they I think they have a track on there, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was minus me. I wasn't I wasn't playing with the band at the time, but ah. I was very, very <laughs> proud of them when they when they got that on there because that really was, you know, the other mile marker for American pop at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, you know, I, I guess I always like to kind of talk to, to artists and, and kind of find out what their influences were at the time that they made the record. Uh, I mean, it can be it can be more than just musical. I mean, it could be cultural. It could be anything like that. But are there things that that inspired you or 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 helped to to shape a certain smile, a certain sadness at that time? Yeah, well, definitely the music that we were listening to Um you know, I we we had come out of shoegaze music, and so and I think you can still hear that influence in the For early sure. rocket ship. Actually, probably still in all of the stuff that I that I do to a certain degree, depending on my mood. But um, but then I, I was really I really liked um, unrest. Mm. They had such a minimalism, you know, that it's just drums, bass, and guitar. But then it was really. It, was, it had a lot of attitude mm-hmm. and um and there's a kind of a, like in the nose like they just seemed like clever in this, that kind of pixies way or something um I, I was really into that um at the time stereo lab obviously was a mm-hmm. huge influence the other thing that was kind of cool was what really um like where I guess everything came and fit together really well was being so into shoegaze music and obviously my bloody Valentine and then Mm -hmm. discovering their early stuff, which is so pop. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, before, you know, before, uh, you know, right when, when uh, they both, uh, when Kevin and and, uh, Belinda start to sing Mm -hmm. um, that, and it's so jangly and everything like that ended up being a big influence to, to, to me too, which is like, I could still, you know, um, I, I guess I'd work through this, those two big shoegazer uh, albums by my bloody Valentine. And so there's, there's this whole other area, um, to explore ex- ecstasy and wine that oh, CD. Sure. Um, let's see. I mean, I think when I listen to a certain smile, I hear the, the pixies, and the breeders in there still yeah. for sure um I, th- I think there's um i think there's sonic youth in there uh still probably some um some slow core influences there I, I gotta tell you too it's funny you you mention all these because 
it, you know, maybe it's just it's the nervous energy getting ready for something like this. And maybe I'm just doing a little bit more critical listening. But when I was listening to it today, I was going to bring up a couple things to you. And I, I had never really put the the shoegaze frame on that album, but it, it, it really is there. But the other one that you just mentioned, and I'm shocked right now, my my chin literally hit the floor here was Pixies because I heard that a little bit tonight and I was going to bring it up to you, but I felt like if I bring up the Pixies, he's going to be like, what are you, what are you talking about? But I hear it and there was, there's a passage and I don't remember which one it is. And I'm like, that's entirely Pixies right there. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Um, Well, they were obviously huge and, and they invented that whole uh, loud soft thing. And Mm -hmm. so there's some of that definitely in, uh, in rocket ship. You know, you can bring just go down to the bass and then come into the chorus or the pre-chorus, bring the guitars and the organ back. Um, but you know, it's different instrumentation and different a different melodic sensibility. Sure. This is me, you know, looking at it from afar. Mm-hmm. And then um, on some songs too, they the Pixies just had that weird trick they did where they would uh, abbreviate a, 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 a measure just to three. <laughs> bars or what i don't know if that's the technical term for it but you know they just do three chords in a row instead of four chords in a row and that's even on um and was trying to learn it the other day on uh on um on naomi and and me mm-hmm. uh in the chorus where it's just if you're getting bored in the song just go back to the beginning of that chorus you don't have to just you know keep playing that chord with nothing else happening and so there's things like that that are certainly there um but again yeah then the you know all the spin-off bands from the pixies i mean the breeders were really important to a lot of people and brought their own take on what the pixies had kind of done um so like i think if there's a little on um, let's go away there's a little drum snare um fill there that to me just is when i hear it now i think oh that was you know one of these very purposeful kind of breeders uh, sure drum fills oh. yeah you know it, it's funny that i i just i didn't pick up on these these influences until just recently and you know they're all there obviously that you know the stereo lab compare not comparisons but influences are, are very strong of course and i was very much into stereo lab myself at the time and you know, I, I just, I always appreciate it. I always kind of felt like, you know, your album was the, the American pop version of, of one of the stereo lab albums of the day. And, uh, yeah, I really, I really can see that. So, you know, for, for the listeners that are, that are listening now, you know, the first song that, that we played that I played actually was the opening track from a certain smile and it's titled, I love you. I, this one's a tough one for me. I got, I got to read this one dusty because it's a really long I love you like the way that I used to do. And I was practicing that and I kept leaving words out. Um, it, it's really a splendid song. It's it's the opener. It showcases that, that unique sound of Rocket Ship. Uh, I hope you really enjoyed that. So we're going to take a break here. We're going to listen to another track from the album, which is actually the second track. And it's titled Kisses Are Always Promises. Uh, this track features Dusty's vocals. I, I think they're more a front and center on this one, at least in my opinion. Uh, very much hummable, full of organs, guitars, drums, synths. So I'd like to go ahead and give Kisses Are Always Promises a spin.
So I was researching the album and I was typing in the name and I came up with the fact that this album shares the title of a Gilberto Wanderly Bossa Nova album. And I think it came out in 1967 from what I could tell. Is there a connection between these albums? Is there a, is there just a coincidence? Can you share something maybe about that? Uh, I just took it really essentially it was before the <laughs> it was before the internet and so I, I think I had an imported version a copy of uh, one of Astrid Gilberto's albums and maybe yeah. it was um, look to the rainbow or something it, it was a, a maybe a Japanese release and it had all of these other um, uh, albums that you know you could get in Japan or import for a lot of money into the U.S. and I thought, oh, well, no one will is ever going <laughs> to be able to hear this no record. I'll, I'll never know, you know, no one, it, it, and it doesn't matter that much. It's some obscure record, you know. Really the only way to get stuff, most of that stuff, that, then was vinyl, and um, I don't even know, you know, if it if it came out in the U.S. But so I just I just liked it, and I think too at the time, um, you know, there was it was the the dawning the dawn of of sampling and yeah. so there's definitely this idea of um, of cultural appropriation or just being able to engage in your culture however you want and why not um you know name or you know take this artwork and then see it from a, a different perspective mm-hmm. um and that, yeah it does, that's the only connection except for that i love that that uh, singer yeah, and, for and sure. her her husband's uh, songwriting. Yeah, we are. I, I was really into bossa nova at the time, and so you know, I was I was wondering if if like you just like hey, I've got this you know very much undiscovered Gilberto album that I wanted to you know use the title on or some reference to, and so I, I was playing it while I was kind of finalizing the the draft for this and. There is a little bit of organ in it too, which is which is kind of interesting. I thought, well, maybe that's the connection. But I just like that. Hey, you know, I, I just kind of grabbed the title, and it was pre-internet days, and maybe maybe I didn't know, and I think that makes for actually a better story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know, I I was I was sharing with uh, with one of the followers on my Instagram account that I was going to be speaking to you, and he's a tremendously huge fan of yours, and so he was going on and on about. Uh, you know things that I should ask you, and the one that I that I wanted to ask you, and I kind of bounced it off you before this interview because I wanted to make sure I had it right. But I like to talk about the recording of the album. You know, I was I obviously listened to it on digital. I've got the reissue version uh, that I believe you wrote a little note in thanking me, which was really nice. Uh, but I, I, my understanding is that you recorded it on a Tascam 388, which I believe is for those recording geeks out there, it's a uh, quarter inch analog tape. Uh, you used your first guitar amp, which I think is really, really cool. And the best part about it is it's just it, the, the recording is so good. So I'd like to know a little bit more about that, you know, how, how you put that together. I mean, who, you know, was it done in a bedroom? You know, just if you could share, I love those kind of stories. I'd just like to hear about that album and how you recorded it. Yeah, it's that uh, one of a kind uh, Tascam 388 with a reel to reel, but the with a mixing board built into it. <laughs> so it's kind of a, a um, deluxe four track, you know, cassette sure. recorder that we we used to have. So the fidelity was better. I and I I've spent years messing around with computers, looking to get to find an EQ that that um, 
it was as pleasing as the EQ on on that mm-hmm. old, you know, relatively cheap task and board. I think that the API has come pretty close, but um, definitely imparted a sound. So it, that was we were renting a house in Oak Park, which um, was not gentrified as it is today. Now I understand in in um, Sacramento, it, and it, so you know it was very inexpensive. It was probably not a good idea to just uh, set up all of my equipment in the garage, <laughs> but that's what I what I had. And so that's where I remember recording the guitars, and I think all of it um, we had uh, and we had the, the songs had all been rehearsed by the band, but we didn't play them all together. I think I did the rhythm sections together, the drums mm-hmm. and bass. Um, the guitar sound I got by mixing a Shure SM80, SM81 and a SM57 and blending them together just off center from the, uh, the heart, the solid state amp. And, um, the idea being that you know you get a lot more high end with sure. the, um, with the uh, SM eighty one, which I've never done again since that time. I should, should probably bust <laughs> bust out with it. But I mean, I guess I thought, oh, I have better mics now, so I don't need to worry about that. But um, uh, you know, yeah, you sh- you should try that at home, kids. I you know I I'm really impressed. So I mean, you you guys basically recorded that in a garage. Yeah. Wow. I, I'm just, I'm so amazed by that because I mean, it, yeah, I, obviously, you know, the garages, <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing all the garages that I know and they're, you know, varying size and acoustic quality, but, um, yeah. I mean, it, it's just, it's a fantastic recording. It really is. And I don't know how old you guys were at the time, but I mean, to use, you know, multiple mics and I mean, you had a, you know, kind of a prosumer, you know, setup. you got, you've got, the most out of it so was that is that an eight track then it's an eight track so I, I did the basic tracks on the uh with one pass and then bounced it to adapt I'm sure and then back onto the eight track to do the vocals and you know the few guitar overdubs and there might be some organ overdubs hmm. on top of that and um which is rather kind of frustrating because it's actually hard would be hard to remix it yeah um because you know we played it to this and this digital version but um yeah once you once you bounce those all together you're right there they all basically become one track mm -hmm. yeah wow that's still that's all pretty advanced stuff i mean and you know and really it kept its fidelity all along which is which is a testament to to you guys and it sounds great i mean again it sounds great digitally it sounds great on vinyl i um, it's just a really, really nice sounding recording, you know, for, for those who have, uh, who've obviously listened to this album or, or heard some of the, the, the samples that we've done so far, uh, organ and, uh, the, the analog synths play a lead role, which I always thought was very cool. I mean, back in the, you know, early to mid nineties, I mean, guitar was, was kind of King and particularly in that scene. And then all of a sudden you guys came along and like the or the organ took center stage. And I always thought that made it very, very different was was that as an influence by some of the the bands that you were listening to because i mean stereo lab is probably that that way where the organs play a front role uh, along with the guitar but w- how did how did that come about i mean was was did you guys set out saying you know we want organs to to be really front and center on this one um i 
I, I guess I'm not exactly sure. It wasn't very conscious, like um, how to, you know, in a way of um, differentiating ourselves, but maybe instinctively, I, I kind of felt that. Um, I mean, in my, I don't know, I guess, you know, a lot of people in their 20s, they have their fingers on their, the pulse of what's cool and what's going on <laughs> more than, than uh, in other age groups. Um, and so I think that there was some of that, but I, you know, that, that was one of the cool things about Stereolab, which was, it became cool. And so there was just suddenly all of these possibilities. The other thing that was really Stereolab that those earlier recordings, they really bridged the gap between um, shoegaze and um, the pop and the, you know, the next kind of um, era of underground music. They, they have, a, you know, they do those, long drone jams and that's not that dissimilar from the kind of spacey stuff that slow dive would do or sea feel or something mm -hmm. um and so it just made a lot of sense to me um and then i already had, <laughs> had this organ from that the slow core thing that i was thinking <laughs> about about doing and um it just kind of all came together as well i had a um my my uncle gave me a uh, Fender Rhodes, mm. a really good one. And um, so that's all over there too. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, more for leads and stuff, or some there's some psychedelic effects with the Rhodes as mm -hmm. well. Um, and so it was kind of, in a way, what was it, what I had on hand. So did you, you know, I, I know I know you had mentioned that that you guys shared some of the organ duties. I mean, this is more of a fanboy question, I guess I suppose. But was was playing of the organ a kind of a shared function, or did did one of the other band band members? You had mentioned one of them was was trained in piano. I mean, who who kind of played a lot of that organ? That was Heidi Barney oh, who, who played so it all, and she, um, you know. Uh, was really adept at these very difficult uh, parts. One of the cool things about this Hammond organ is it has two two keyboards, mm -hmm. and so you, we could do a lead and the chords kind of on top of each other in the same register, where you didn't have to play the melodies an octave up. So she was doing a lot of that, doing these chord changes and then melodies on top of it, and then singing sometimes with uh, in unison with me um, or or some backup vocals and so really complicated there's a i think on <laughs> i love you uh, how would i how would you say that first song <laughs> i'm glad you're um, struggling too <laughs> <laughs> she uh when it goes to the little breakdown part she's doing this arpeggio on the roads and then she would take some tape and tape down the Moog to to have this the drone note that comes in as the drum fill starts um, building. And then when that that was taped down, she then could use her hand to then bring the chords in when when we start, you know, uh, when the whole band comes back and when the yeah. bass comes in. So really kind of hard stuff that I could never ever do. I'm, I can get my way make my way around a keyboard but not, not like that wow you know I, I got i got a little bit of chills just now because i was i was picturing that and i i do ask you later on about you know playing live and, and we'll get to that in a minute but i always kind of i guess i always kind of pictured you sitting at the organ and and you know i, I apparently that really was obviously you know you know how to get your way around it like you said but um, I'm a, I'm a little bit surprised by that, but it's, it's, it, it's so good. And, and, you know, obviously if, if you ever talk to her again, I mean, 
sure she may hear this, but it's just, it's so masterful and I, I really enjoyed it. You mentioned in the last answer something that I was going to ask about. And, you know, there's most of the songs on the album are, are joined and they're, and they're joined with kind of these drone elements and, and these extensions and outros of songs. And, uh, I was, I was kind of thinking about it tonight and it just reminds me a little bit of kind of what, what pale saints did with the comforts of madness. And it, it just created for me always this one cohesive work where you're not really sure where one song ends and one song begins and that, uh, was that, was that kind of your intention or, or was there some other influence to do that? Well, my guess is the, the pale saints and rocket ship were, but had both heard those my buddy Valentine records oh, that's true. because I mean, I think that that's where yep. I definitely got that from. And, um, I know that they were, everybody was really influenced by, by that at the, at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's 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 pretty much pretty much straight straight uh, straight straight influence. <laughs> you know, and I and I, I was going to ask you a really geeky question, but like I was sitting here thinking about the fact that you did that on analog in ninety five ninety six, and I'm thinking, how without you know digital workstations and things, how how did you, you know accomplish that you know i mean how did you how did you accomplish having those those drone elements just seamlessly flow into the next the next song i mean was that something that was done on a separate track or was it done after the fact i'm, I'm just this is another fanboy question by the way yeah it's it's i'm actually surprised that that uh, we could do it um a lot of those things i wrote on uh i had a four track that i just had in my bedroom and so i'd mess around with moog and casio drum beats and stuff like that and um we when we were when it was time to put the record together we went to enharmonic studio in in um sacramento owned by john bachgalupi now of tape op Mm. And he, um, not he, but his engineer there, they, they had some kind of primitive computer and were able to sequence everything mm. like that and put it into a form that um, that uh, then we could give to Slumberland. Interesting. And and that, so that, would, just, that would make sense. Yeah. Wow. I mean, even, even back then, I mean, those must have been the, the early days for, you know, digital audio at, at the independent level, I'm, I'm guessing. I mean... I would, yeah, I don't know what, what they used, but I mean, the conversion had to be terrible. So, you know, we're going to, we're going to take a, another break here. We're going to listen to another track from a certain smile, uh, titled let's go away. I I just love this track so much. Uh, you know, I think I find it unique in that, uh, just over half the song is an instrumental outro, uh, that frankly in the hands of someone, I think less capable than, than dusty in the band, uh, would probably be considered self-indulgent, but not here at all. I think it's a masterful change of pace, you know, within the song. I think it creates the perfect intro to the next song. So with that, let's go ahead and give Let's Go Away a listen.
So in my opinion, there isn't one weak song on this album. And, and I really mean that I'm not just because I'm talking to, you know, the, the creative force behind it, but it's, it's solid from start to finish, but yet short uh, in that it's only 34 minutes. I, I guess I was wondering, were there songs that, that you and the band decided to, to cut maybe because they didn't make the cut or were some of those more tracking decisions in terms of how things went together? What was what was kind of the thought? I mean, an eight-track album isn't isn't entirely that long. It's maybe a little bit longer than an EP. So, what was the the, the decisions maybe behind that? Well, originally I wanted to do a ten-inch. Oh, I love ten inches for for Slumberland, and he agreed to it. I mean, I think the labels don't like it at all because no. they're they cost just as much and maybe people don't buy them as much i'm not sure but um but i think he originally agreed to it but then this the uh the length of the record was just too long to get onto a inch, so it became a 12 inch wow yeah i mean it's did you did you actually have to 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 cut songs to do that or um i mean a lot of times you know you have to make those those creative decisions where maybe you love a track but it just doesn't fit or things like that but I mean, was, were there, were there, I guess what I'm getting at is, are there unreleased tracks somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, that was how the album was intended. Okay. Those eight, those eight songs. I suppose the interludes pushed it over the edge out of the 10 inch range. I love 10 inches so much. You know, I'm a, I'm a big Sarah collector and Sarah fan and, um, you know, I've, I've got all the Sarah 10 inches and to me, they're like the oddball of, of the vinyl world, but. I just love them so much and I can't even really explain why. I mean, they're really not efficient. And like you said, they probably cost just as much to produce an LP, but I think I just like them because they're so quirky. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There was a period when everybody wanted to, wanted to do at least one tinge if you could. Oh, the softies yeah. got one out of mic. Oh, really? Yeah. I love the softies. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the album cover. You know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, an appreciator of, of the sleeve as well as the production and the recording and the actual music. And I, to me, I mean, the typeface and the, and the artwork is just perfect for the music on this one. And for those who maybe haven't seen the cover yet, I definitely urge you to check it out. It's, it's one of the coolest album covers that I know that I own. I was really looking at it pretty pretty close last night and just to kind of explain it for those that are listening it has this this painting on the cover and it's got a man and a woman it appears that they're caressing it looks like it's maybe maybe done in like a 60s maybe 70s style I'm not really sure but could you maybe share a little bit more about about that decision to put that on the sleeve and, and that I'd really like to hear that yeah well um in and that period was when at least people I knew or started started hanging around with in, in Sacramento that um, started going go to thrift stores, mm -hmm. and you can find all kinds of cool stuff there. And I found a four album box set put out by Reader's Digest <laughs> that had that image on it, and so again I sampled it. And that's what it is. You can still find that um, all over the place. So I'm sure listeners of uh, of this podcast will be scouring their local thrift stores for old uh, <laughs> old prints of that, trying to find it. It's I on eBay too. Really? Mm -hmm. Wow. 
Yeah, and I love even even the uh, the the font that you used. I thought was just so perfect. It, it kind of had that little bit of a you know kind of retro look to it, and mm-hmm. um, definitely definitely well done. So I mentioned this earlier. I kind of teased this question, but you know, you you and, and your band were always on my short list of of bands that I always wanted to see live. I felt that it would have translated so well to a live setting. I, I really kind of, I don't know if you ever came through Detroit. I'm, if you did, I, I missed you. And if you didn't, you should have. Um, but I guess I'd like to know a little bit more about the, the, the live rocket ship from that time. I mean, did you guys do a lot of touring, playing live? And, and kind of what are your feelings on, on trying to recreate your sound live? Well, that that original group that I played out with, um, with the four of us, we only played Sacramento and I think we maybe played San Francisco a okay. few times. And then when the album came out, we broke up or oh. two, two of the members left, I should say, but um, you know, it had already had a couple iterations. And so I just kept going with new iterations. Um, but then it was time to tour to support the record. And so, and I had been um, hanging around with, uh, Henry's dress recording mm-hmm. those folks down sure. in, in San Francisco there on Summerland too. Mm-hmm. And so Mike thought we should put together a Henry's dress rocket ship tour. And so we got a couple people that um, they knew uh, a friend of uh, Henry's dress, Josh Ong to play drums. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, Matt from Henry's dress played guitar mm-hmm. And um, then uh, Paul Curran, who ended up being in Go Sailor with Rose Melberg. Um, And he was kind of well-known around the Bay Area, pop scene, I guess, Oakland Mm -hmm. and and the like. He played bass. And what happened was, and this is constantly a problem with trying to put together a band, is there aren't enough keyboard players who can play my stuff really within the indie zone you know people mm-hmm. who can really know how to play a keyboard um maybe aren't into into, into indie pop or whatever but <laughs> a lot of it's kind of hard to do and so i've found myself a couple of times on the on the um, organ and so we borrowed i just used one of um, the members of henry's dresses or maybe it's one of their friends organ we rehearsed down there and then went on tour for four or five weeks. And that's the only U.S. tour we ever did. I, I do believe we went through Detroit. Was there a place called Zoots? There was Zoots. We could, we're going to talk about Zoots in a second now that you brought that up. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, well, I have a really uh, poor memory. I don't know oh. if I remember specifics about that, but um, I, I would probably recognize photos of it. But um, So, yeah, and that experience which was quite memorable and i enjoyed a lot of it nonetheless really um cemented for me how that that was not a part of um being in the, the part of what i liked about being in a band sure going going on tour and being in a van for for you know half a day and rolling into some town and and setting up and crashing on people's floors and then you know, getting in the coffee and a bagel and, and then you got to take off again, not really even get to see the town. Um, what just sucked, I think. And I, some people really like it, but, um, I don't, I didn't like the, you know, you get to know somebody for 24 hours and then you never see him again. (laughs) And it's kind of all heartbreaking. And then, you know, it's backbreaking too, to, to, uh, to move all that stuff around. And so, 
it's not something I've, I've uh, longed to do and I don't really like playing live that much. And partially it, it is because the, um, it's the reproducing of the, yeah. the music is um, I, I find um, not always pleasurable and it can be kind of difficult. That is, I guess what I really like is writing the stuff and, and having it come out of the speakers the way I want. And then I kind of, I'll pretty much not really listen to my recordings ever again. And <laughs> the, and then trying, but trying to then, I don't know, emulate the feeling again yeah. <laughs> on stage. And when, and I'm thinking about more technical things, you yeah. know, like did I bring enough picks or whatever <laughs> kind of random stuff it is, but then I'm in the, supposed to be in the emotional state about my girlfriend from 15 years ago <laughs> or, or whatever it is, um, is very, it just, it, there's a lot of, <laughs> have a, a lot of confliction about it. Um, but, uh, I, I, I like the band practice, I guess. I like getting together with these other people and actually making it come together yeah, I can I can relate to that. So you know, I we we when I when I played with shoestrings and it, we were in a band before that together. We we rarely ever played, and and it was it's funny as you were kind of working through all the different, uh, I guess parts that you really didn't like. I could agree with just about all of them. I felt the same way. I felt like I just I liked the freedom of you know recording and and, and fiddling and re-recording and. It just it had this like control because then when you we got up in front of people, it always just felt a little awkward to me that, you know, like, why are we standing here facing them doing this? I can't even I, I guess maybe because we're we're not rock stars and we don't we don't love that life. So it just felt like someone yanked me out of the bedroom and, and threw me up on stage in front of all these people. And uh, I, I can totally relate with all the things you said. I mean, I remember my last show and I remember I, I couldn't hear the bass and we were in the shelter in Detroit, which at the time, you know, was, I don't, I wouldn't say it was really big in terms of indie rock. In fact, the show, if I remember correctly, there was, uh, I think two people there and one of them was the bartender and the other one was, uh, which, which the other one was a really, really good spectator. It was, uh, Dominique from Ivy because wow. we were opening for Ivy. And I remember her leaning against the bar during the show. And I was like kind of wedged behind this pillar and I, I couldn't hear myself. And I remember saying, you know what, is this, is this really for me anymore? I just, I don't really enjoy this playing live. And so that was really it. I packed up my, my borrowed bass and I really never stepped on stage again. Wow. Yeah. So, but I do want to talk about Zoots because it's funny you bring up Zoots. Zoots is like, there, there's a fan page on Facebook for it. And it's, it's like this legendary, uh, uh, performance space in Detroit. And at the time, uh, that was, it was on what they call Cass Avenue and they used to call it the Cass Corridor. And it was just the toughest part of Detroit. There's one of the toughest parts of Detroit, let's just say, but yet you had this, you know, indie pop, uh, Mecca going on there. And, and we played Zoots a couple times. We played, uh, I think we played like a holiday pop festival or two. I remember playing, uh, Andrew's bass from the band Holiday, and uh, that was those are a lot of good memories from that. If, mm -hmm. if if you can ever look at the shows there and and see who played there, it really is a who's who of of the indie scene back then. And uh, I still drive by there because Third Man Records, you know Jack White's store and pressing plant, 
is about probably about a five minute walk from there. And uh, so I drive by there and I'm like, whoa, wait, is that Zoots? And it's, I think it's some like digital marketing company now. But it was actually <laughs> like, if you remember, and I don't know if you would, but it was actually a house. And you would play in the living room and you would kind of have your back to like the bay windows and you'd face kind of the rear of the house. And it was just a cool place. And it just, it brings back all kinds of great memories. And that's pretty neat that, that you, you guys think you played there. No, that, that is what I remembered. I was going to yeah. ask you, was it in a house? And yep. um, I actually, I think it's, there's video footage on YouTube of Whoa. us playing there as well as Henry's dress. And, right. But yes, I remember at the time thinking, where are we? That, you know, half of the houses <laughs> were demolished or something. Right. It was, just, it was um, I didn't know where we if we were in the right place yeah and it's become it's become a completely different area now it's it's kind of on the outskirts of wayne state university and so there's a lot of students that live around there now and they call it midtown now in detroit (laughs) so you know there's like the shinola store and then there's third man and that's i mean it's 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 pretty nice right now but um it just I, i think back to i remember i think we were playing at suits one night and i remember carrying like it was either the guitar or the bass and i remember looking to my left i can still picture it and there was a guy with a you know big tube tv and a shopping cart going across the street <laughs> uh, score but yeah yeah right uh, but yeah a lot of good memories of zoots for sure so i'm lost without you here is the next track that we're going to hear uh i consider it frankly one of the most perfect pop songs that i've probably ever heard uh it features dusty's voice along with heidi's voice uh, really, really just well done. Similar to Let's Go Away, it has a roughly one-minute instrumental outro, uh, which leads directly to the next song, which Dusty talked a little bit about early on. Uh, again, one of my favorite tracks from A Certain Smile, and this is I'm Lost Without You Here. <laughs> Oh, 
So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the label Twee. And, you know, I I remember at the time it was considered, uh, you know, somewhat of a genre, somewhat of an insult, which always really, really bothered <laughs> me. Um, I was doing research for this and I came across an Instagram post that I thought was really, really interesting. And it said that uh, while the pastels were really the flag bearers of that early Twee movement in Europe, that rocket ship was that in the U.S. in the 90s. And I believe they mentioned A Certain Smile uh, on their short list of albums to get into Twee with, which was classic, by the way. Um, it also had the likes of Beat Happening, Shop Assistance, Camera Obscura, Always. Uh, I mean, really, really good company, if you ask me. I'd like to ask your feelings about that statement and, and that label Twee, because I'm sure you heard it back then and everything. I'd like to kind of get your take on that. Well, in, in hindsight, I can see what people mean about, you know, what is Twee about Rocket Ship, or I should, I should say some Rocket Ship songs, like there's sure. elements of it. I think at the time we weren't really considered Twee. They were way like more um, cute and, and precious um, bands that, that, uh, than we were in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, because I think we had, we always had that, we have the rock element to yeah, it and, sure. you know, maybe the shoegaze bit too, or, you know, the pixies kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just all um, sunshine and, and, uh, you know, popcorn or whatever kind sure. of um, lyrics um, or even a, a pro approach to songs like, um, Carrie Cooksey, for example, is it's not a Twee song at all. Not at all. And so the, I think it, I think we have some, twe there's some Twee elements to us, but then, I mean, I was thinking about it somewhat um, over the last, over the weekend and Twee is, is almost innate in just pop music to yeah. a, to a large degree. I mean, certainly, you know, big influence of rocket ship and a lot of the bands that we were into in the, the early 90s we were going back to the 60s mm -hmm. i mean the beach boys from a certain perspective are an incredibly twee band but we just think of them as as the beach boys or just as pop um and all kinds of stuff i mean even you know that astrid gilberta stuff i mean just um uh oh um you know, you can, out of the carpenters or whatever, you know, there's just, there's this kind of, I mean, maybe we don't have a good working definition of, of what it is. Sure. We anyway, but um, so, yeah, I, I see that it's, that it's a, a part of, of what we were doing, but I, I never really kind of got it at the time, what it, what people meant by it. Though I remember there was a t-shirt, which I kind of liked, which was uh, Twee as fuck. Which <laughs> I remember I, that. <laughs> Yeah, it was a kind of slogan, which you know, it was it was kind of um, bringing some some edge back to this kind of sexless, um, derogatory <laughs> um, term thrown around, you know. But um, so, yeah, it always it. You know, I mean, 
I never liked the term. It I don't know. It just it felt like it was, it was just an, it felt like it was being hurled, as an insult. And and you know I guess I kind of felt the same way about shoegaze. I mean frankly we you know we throw shoegaze around now you know thirty years after, you know it was kind of in its heyday. And I mean you know that because you were around that that was that was really an insult that it was you know a bunch of you know guys and girls who don't know how to play their instruments staring down at their shoes and i don't know i guess i i guess i don't i don't really love terms that are thrown around like that but i guess if i was to say okay you know let's let's kind of look at it in terms of the context of the music i do see you know similarities in the types of music that those bands play i guess but I don't know. There's just there's something that always bothered me about that, and and when I came across that, and I don't know if it's maybe because I was searching and and doing research for this, but when that post came up, I'm like, oh, let's see who's on this, and I'm like, wait a minute, like Dusty's album is on like the number one album to get into Twee with. I'm like, I don't know that I really agree with that, um, you know. But I figured I'd just ask you about it, get your opinion. So I I appreciate that. You know, you 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 reissued the album, and I, I believe it was in 2016, uh, about 20 years after its initial release. I I have a copy of it here. I mentioned it earlier. There's a little square where you said thanks, Brian, which I I love. Um, was was this reissue in response to fans asking for this, or was this something that you primarily wanted to do? Um, I guess it was a, a mixture of both. I um, It just seemed that, I mean, it was sold out and it just seems like, well, a bunch of people, you should just keep it in print and, sure. and vinyl if that's what people want. Um, and it was going for a lot of money, um, the, the, those original pressings. And that just doesn't seem right, you know? So if you, if you could just if you want to hear it on vinyl, you shouldn't have to spend, you know, $75 or whatever it is, you know, 40. And so, um, that was, that was the reason why, I mean, there were, yeah, people wanted to do it and, um, or, you know, there seemed to be some enthusiasm. Oh, for sure. So I guess geeky side question, uh, and this is not something that I prepared in advance, but did you, did you remaster that or did you just take it from the original masters? That is taken from the original masters. Okay. Yeah. So it's basically, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty close to the original as you're going to get. And I've never heard the original, but I have to tell you that the reissue sounds great. Um, at least on my system, it sounds really, oh, really cool. good. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's really good. I was listening to it last night and, you know, of course, as my complaint is usually with, with albums and recordings I love, it's just too short. I wish there was more. Um, but very cool. And for those of you that that are listening that maybe love the album, but don't have, you know, the reissue, it's, it's a really cool, like a opaque Brown. Is that what that is? Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I mean, you can kind of, yeah, it's like, it's like a Coca-Cola in in like a glass. I mean, you can kind of, it's probably a little lighter, but you can, you can kind of look through it and it's, it's really neat at the right light. It just looks black. But then I think, upon one of those first listens i, I kind of held it up and I have a little light over my turntable I'm like whoa you can see right through this thing <laughs> very very nice i was trying to match it to the uh, album cover colors yeah it's perfect it's really one thing really about the fidelity on that you know with regard to uh, it only being eight songs is um the, you know the grooves can uh, be cut uh, 
more widely, I believe. Mm-hmm. And like the less time that you have on a side of a, of a record, the, the fidelity is going to be better. And so I've always thought that that helped the record to, to some degree. Yeah, I think it does. So at least I have, I have a pretty good turntable here. I mean, it's it's I think it's pretty good. But it does suffer. Here we here we go. If those of you who don't want to get into geeky audio stuff, you may want to pause this. But there, you know, I there is that thing like inner groove distortion. So the closer you get to that label, the the I, I think like the stylus has to react quicker or whatever. But it does give it some some distortion. But you're right because of the shortness of each side, it doesn't really get close enough to the label. And you never experience that, so um, it really it's it's a it's a really nice recording for vinyl, and and again I appreciate it. And for those of you who don't own it, you should definitely buy it. There's no doubt. So, you know, you you've obviously you've had quite a few years. I mean, I think it's it's probably 25 years now at least since you know writing and recording it. When you've had the chance to reflect on it, is there anything that maybe you would have done differently? Hmm. Um, I mean, the first thing that came to mind was I wish that I had mixed the bass louder. Interesting. The drums and bass, because, you know, I had to bounce them down to the dat and then back onto the machine. And in hindsight, those levels aren't really loud enough for me. Hmm. Although it was also an era when I listened to a lot of stuff from the 90s, the guitars are really loud and the bass (laughs) is really lacking. Um, But the drums could have been louder. I mean, it sounds like a a home DIY recording and I, you know, it has a, a, a good vibe, but that's, you know, the, the engineer in me today, sure. uh, thinking about it. Um, no, I'm, I, I, it came out really good, you know, at the time I, I liked it at the time and, um, uh, and still do yeah. and when, I, you know, every five years or something, I'll play it and I'll, I'll remind, be reminded of, of things I forgot that um, I was doing at the time that um, I didn't remember I was doing at the time, whether it was, you know, kinds of chords I was thinking of or or even arrangement ideas. I think, oh, that was was pretty clever. (laughs) Does it, you know, again, another off script question, but so, you know, when you listen to it, say every five years or whatever that cycle is, aside from listening you know, saying, wow, that's really neat the way we did that or whatever. Does it, does it bring you back to the time in which the album was recorded and written? I mean, do you kind of go back and kind of have those flashbacks of, you know, being in the garage or rehearsing or working at the record store? I mean, do do a lot of those memories come back? Oh yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I just, uh, that's, yeah, I'm just flooded with all of those memories and a lot of the emotions too. The songs yeah. being about various people and um, and uh, thinking about where they are now and and how things have changed. Yeah, yeah. No, I know the feeling too. I mean, when I when I listen to anything that I was involved with, I it's the exact same thing. I mean, I'm just short of being able to you know smell the smells that. That, that were happening at the time we were either recording or rehearsing or, or just kind of hanging out. I mean, it, you know, as you get older, you know, just responsibilities and, and time constraints, you just don't have all of that openness that you do when you're in your early 20s, you know, to explore and just time doesn't matter as much, you know, and, and when you listen to those, those songs, it just it kind of brings it all back, at least for me. 
Yeah, me too. Yeah. So I wanted to know what you're up to these days. You know, what are, what are you doing? I mean, what are you doing musically? I just, I'm opening it up. You just tell me what you've been up to because I'd love to kind of catch up and find out what you've been doing. Well, so I put up that record, I guess, two or three years ago now, uh, thanks to you. And that came out really well, I think. Uh, you Very know, it changed the aesthetic, uh, thank you, uh, a little bit with uh, Ellen really taking the lead vocals on it. And um, so I've just been composing like crazy uh, since then. So I want to put out a couple more records in it and an EP in, yeah. in short order nice. here. So really trying to wrap up either it's either, you know, it's either going to be a double or you just get up another 10 songs here in the next, next period. So nice. really at the very end of that phase of uh, getting the vocals down and then needing to mix it. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I spend my time doing, nice. you know, when I'm not um, hanging out with my kids playing chess or that's awesome. off at work. Um, I, I guess one follow up on, on the on the upcoming projects. Is it is it mainly just you or are you working with Ellen again or what's the lineup? Oh, yeah. Ellen, Ellen will be on it. And then cool. I have a cast of uh, characters that, you know, musicians I like to work with, depending on, on what's needed. And so Jim Rivas, he'll be on there again, the original, nice. or I guess technically the second drummer of Rocket Chip, but from A Certain Smile. And I uh, just sent him some some tracks to record and so we have to we do it all remotely and the process is is totally different now um than it than it used to be back then though in some ways not not in some ways it's the same um but um so and then yeah i have a drummer here adam bear probably have him play on and then ellen year, years ago in the the aughts i guess um was in a a cover band called the She Bee Gees, and they were a, it was an all female Bee Gees cover band, all pre disco, <laughs> and all pre you know they didn't do any of the disco stuff, and but they did these you know three and four part harmonies, and um, so on this new record, there's going to be a lot of harmonies, and so I'll probably bring in some of the the She Bee Gees to record uh, vocals, choir vocals, and the like, and so you know there'll be some new new elements uh, that I haven't um, explored as much wow. in the past on this sure. one. And it'll still be under the rocket ship logo name. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. cool. All right. Very nice. Hey, Dusty, thank you so much for speaking to me today. You know, we, uh, we spent quite a bit of time talking about a certain smile. Uh, it's held a really special place for me over the years. I, hopefully that, that kind of showed in the way that I I've approached speaking to you and, as well as my friends. I mean, we, we spent a lot of time talking about that album and really breaking it down. And I feel like I've learned a bunch today that I didn't really know. And, and I think it's going to make for a, a really special listen next time. Uh, it holds a very special place for me. And I just wanted to thank you again for speaking with me. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure, Brian. And, and thanks for asking me to do it. Absolutely. I'm so happy you did. So, we're going to close out the show here though, for, for those of you who have, have enjoyed the discussion with Dusty from rocket ship, uh, as well as hearing some of the samples of this album, I'm going to have links to, uh, different playlists for digital, but again, go to Bandcamp. I, I believe Dusty's got a presence there. 
Uh, I'm sure there's other places you can pick up his his work, but I definitely, definitely would recommend it. Uh, as I close out the show, though, we are going to uh, hear another track from 1996 Slumberland release, A Certain Smile, A Certain Sadness, and it's going to be We're Both Alone. And, you know, I love this track so much. I love the vocals, uh, the, the, the leading organ again, like we talked about earlier with the synths. Um, I always found the rhythm section to be really tight on this. So with that, we're going to close out the discussion with Dusty from Rocket Ship by hearing the seventh track from A Certain Smile, A Certain Sadness. And this is We're Both Alone. And thanks again, Dusty, for joining me. Thank you, Brian.
Thanks again for listening today, and a very special thank you to Dusty of Rocketship for joining me to speak about his band's 1996 masterpiece, A Certain Smile, A Certain Sadness. As you could tell from the discussion, I absolutely love this album, and Dusty was such a gracious guest who shared his best memories of the recording of this album. It was so fantastic that he was able to share so many special memories about its creation, the artwork, and there was just so many really, really good stories in there. As always, you can find this and all previous episodes on your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google, and others. If you like what you've heard, I urge you to leave me a review, maybe leave me an email, uh, give me some stars on Apple uh, Podcasts, and uh, the more that we do that, the more that this show will get out there. So again, we're going to close out this episode 10 of the Vinyl Detroit podcast uh, with my discussion with Dusty Resky with the eighth and final track from A Certain Smile, A Certain Sadness, and this is Friendships and Love. Thanks again for listening.